Hello, and welcome to the Bristol Jazz and Blues Festival podcast series. Today, our special guest is the one and only Mr. Paul Jones, and our guest interviewer, the wonderful Tony Benjamin. Enjoy. Paul, thank you so much for doing this interview. And uh, as I was preparing for this, it suddenly occurred to me just how many amazing musicians you've actually interviewed in your long career as a radio presenter, particularly, and that uh, you must have talked to pretty much every significant blues musician of the last 30-odd years. Um, so, uh, and quite a lot of jazz ones as well. Indeed, yes. So I, I have to say it's slightly intimidating to find the boot on the other foot here, but... Uh, I'll, uh, I'll do my best not to uh, not to make too much of a fool of myself. Me too. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and I also am very aware that you've had a career spanning. I think it has to be now six decades of uh, of since since the uh, the legendary Manfred Mann and your your as I mentioned to you earlier that the fact that me and many of my cohort all waited for you to say five on a Friday afternoon before we could begin our, our proper weekend uh, because of the theme tune. Five, four, three, two, one. Absolutely. Five, four, three, two, one. The signature tune of Ready, Steady, Go. Ready, yes. Still, to my mind, one of the finest musical programmes has ever been on the on the television. Yes, it's, it's a, that was a very important thing for, for your generation there, for all of us. But um, clearly it reflected the fact that you your band by then had already got the status to be invited, as I think you were invited, weren't you, to compose that theme tune, especially for the yes. programme. Um, yes. They liked, uh, they, they liked a record that we'd had out just before that called Cocker Hoop, which was a song I wrote. And uh, it, it wasn't a hit, but it, it sort of had a bow diddly rhythm and uh, it was quite arresting and they said well we want you to sort of do something very much like that and we must have a countdown on the middle on the beginning of it and uh so yeah they gave us quite a few instructions and by the time they'd finished there wasn't much left to do but sort of put a few words to it really and there were quite sort of surreal words as i recall in reference to into the valley of death road the 600 and all that uh <laughs> it seemed very very left field for a pop record that's for sure Yes, well, as it, it, I suppose it was really, and that's one of the reasons it's survived so well. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, but of course, one of the things about yeah, the Manfred Mann Band was was very much a, a group of jazz musicians, wasn't it? Who who uh, and that you'd already previously been involved in the jazz and blues scene in London uh, for quite some time, hadn't yes. you? But I wonder how you found yourself coming into the world of, of blues and jazz music. Was, was that something that you did yes. from an early age or did you come to it in London? Or Well, yes. I, I was... Uh, hmm. It was 1956 and Lonnie Donegan was high in the charts with Rock Island Line. Everybody I knew was sort of, you know, doing all that skiffle stuff. But that year was also the year of... a a film called The Benny Goodman Story, 1956. And I absolutely adored that movie. It was, it was so exciting to me, much more exciting than Rock Island Line. Um, but particularly uh, musicians of the, the quality of Goodman and Teddy Wilson and Lionel Hampton and Charlie Christian. I mean, it was just amazing. So... Uh, Actually, I'm not sure Charlie Christian figured very large in that. Gene Krupa certainly did. Um, <laughs> and that, that really took me over. I, I, I became a jazz fan and I, was, uh, I stayed one as well. I know I had a skiffle group as well, but uh, it was really jazz that I was most excited about. And um, when somebody telephoned me in, uh, it got, it's got to be sort of 1962, summer of 62, and said, uh, do you know who Manfred Mann is? <laughs> I said, if, if you mean the guy who writes a column in Jazz News, yes, I do know who he is. So you, you can see from that, I, I was really into jazz as, at least as much as I was into blues at that early stage. But huh, uh, buying Count Basie records and finding Jimmy Rushing on them, 
that had a big effect on me as well. So I was, I, in fact, I, I really thought I, I liked the songs that had, the records that had singing on. And of course, nine times out of 10, that meant blues anyway. Indeed. And harmonica, presumably. When did you start playing the harmonica? Well, uh, when, when I started to really get into the blues, I was listening to Muddy Waters. And uh, of course, Muddy Waters had a whole string of amazing blues harmonica players. Mm. Little Walter, Big Walter, <laughs> um, Junior Wells, uh, Henry Strong, and, and, you know, and then on to Mojo Buford and Carrie Bell and so on. But I, I was really trying to play like Little Walter and failing miserably. And a friend of mine called Brian Jones, who had something to do with the starting the Rolling Stones, said to me, I suppose you know you're doing that all wrong, or words to that effect. And I said, what, what, what do you mean? Uh, you just blow and suck, don't you? And he said, look, what, what harmonica, what key is that harmonica that you have in your hand? And I said, it's, in, it's a C harmonica. And he said, and what key have you been playing it in? I said, C. He said, that's your first mistake. <laughs> well, you can, yes. if you get good, you can, you can certainly play blues in C on a C harmonica. But what you really need to do is to grasp playing blues in the key of G on a C harmonica. And Brian Jones taught me that. Yes. And that changed my whole life. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing because it is the basic rule with harmonicas, isn't it? That you, whatever number it says on the side, yeah, you, you know, you've got to transpose it in order to know what blues you're going to play. Because otherwise, you're just playing the major scale, aren't you? Uh, first position, uh, in other words, playing in C on a C, is uh, is absolutely wonderful. When you get people like Jimmy Reed and Big Walter Horton, they can make wonderful blues. Mm-hmm. in first position. And nowadays, so can people like Kim Wilson and the greats. Mm-hmm. And talking of the greats, and I'm, I'm just wondering, when you first came to London in the, was it the late 50s, early 60s, um, presumably people like Cyril Davis were very significant as harmonica players. Yes, Cyril was very significant indeed because um, there weren't many like him. I mean, in fact, some say there's none like him at all, but there certainly weren't that many harmonica players around at the time. Um, And he was very much more uh, further advanced than a lot of us slightly younger people. Um, I can't honestly say, though, that Cyril was a big influence on me because he and I were listening to the same people. And one of the people that he and I shared a really big enthusiasm for was a harmonica player called James Cotton, who also was one of one of that string of great harmonica players that Muddy Waters had. But he had some great records of his own. I think probably uh, that's what the closest I came to uh, Cyril was that we both liked James Cotton enormously. So you said Brian Jones was your friend. I think. He wasn't playing under the name. Well, you were playing. That's when you became Paul Jones, wasn't it? Was when you were playing with him, and then he took his name was Elmo Elmo Jones. Were you? I can't have I got yes. that right? Well, I, or was he Elmo Lewis? I think he. I think he. I think he was Elmo Lewis at the time. But it, um, yes, in fact, I was Thunder Odin um, ah. at the time that I'm. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a tautology, of course, because Odin is the Norse god of thunder. But anyway, it it seemed like a good idea at the time. And um, now I had an undergraduate band. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, (laughs) it was interesting, actually, because I lost my my guitarist. Um, the, the, The band that I had at university was partly university people, but partly townies, as we, you know, which was musicians who weren't uh, at the university. But um, I lost my guitar player because he sort of got married and had to get a proper job. And um, I asked Brian Jones if he would like to um, be my 
guitarist. And he said, I don't want to be in any band unless I'm its leader. So I said, so I said well, this band's already got a leader. But we remained friends. And um, then a little bit later on, he asked me if I wanted to join a band that he was starting. And I, I said no, partly because I thought he was being unduly optimistic about the financial possibilities of a blues band. Right. Um, he turned out to be writer than I was. And uh, secondly, because I'd actually had a, I'd, I'd, te- I'd done an audition for a, blue, for a dance band and got the job. And the, the, all sorts of promises were made to me by the, the uh, man who ran it, uh, who, who was an agent as well. And uh, I thought, oh, well, this is my future secured. Brian's taking big chances and I don't need to. <laughs> ah, well, <laughs> he who hesitates, as they say, but uh, <laughs> but then sure, presumably not long after that, the Manfred Mann uh, gig came along. Um, well, that's right. That was the next time anybody said to me, we're forming a band, do you want to be in it? I said, <laughs> yes, that's me. <laughs> and presumably then you were moving around the, like the world of the Marquee Club and, and the whole sort of hot London scene at the time. Absolutely, yes, because uh, Cyril Davis, of course, was, was uh, in, in the uh, Alexis Corner Blues Incorporated mm. and, uh, and, or had been, um, but it, it, certainly he, he was when I first came to London. But he, he um, yes, yeah, so, so really that was a very, very important thing to pay attention to because they were, it was, it was very unusual because it was a, a blues band, and yet it, ha- it was full of jazz musicians. Mm. And if you look back at now at the repertoire, they, they, were, they were digging rep- repertoire out of sort of pre-war blues, you know, country blues, and also out of uh, uh, quite sophisticated jazz in some cases. I mean, people like Charlie Mingus and so on. Mm-hmm. Certainly Duke Ellington's small bands and things, that's uh, very much a big influence of Alexis Corner, and that was the kind of music I absolutely loved. I, I was mad about people like Johnny Hodges, and um, well, anyway, it, it was it was lovely music, and I loved it. And did you get to see, therefore, yeah, much of it being performed by the original musicians in London at the time? Well, one thing that had a very big effect on me was a gig in Southampton by the Modern Jazz Quartet. I became instantly a, a great fan of Milk Jackson. Having been a big fan of Lionel Hampton, I, I don't know why I didn't take up the vibraphone because <laughs> I, I'm crazy about vibraphone players. And anyway, um, th- that was a, a stunning night of music. And I don't know if you noticed this, but Milk Jackson uh, had such a powerful blues content in his improvising. It, it, they, they played these very sort of elegant um, almost classical, mm. sometimes almost Baroque sort of melodies. And, and there was a very sort of gentle and elegant feel to these things. And then when Milt Jackson soloed, bang, you know, ding, ding, you know he, was, he was into the blues straight away. And uh, so it became big influence or a, 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 at least a, a, a great um, idol. No hero of mine. So that was very important. And also uh, there was a British band that supported that gig in Southampton and it was Don Rendell's uh, sextet with uh, people like uh, Ronnie Ross and Bert Courtley in it. And oh, Mm -hmm. tremendous. And um, so, yeah, I, I did get to hear some Americans but a lot of my time was spent listening to people like Joe Harriet and Shake Keen, mm. uh, Dick Hextel Smith and Art Theman and, and all those sort of Brit jazz musicians. Um, and, uh, yeah, what other Americans did I see in those far off days? I'll, I'll come up with something in a minute. <laughs> I was wondering about uh, the American blues musician, because yeah, obviously uh, Chris Barber, I think, oh, yeah. was... was bringing people over whenever he could. I mean, did you see Muddy Waters, for instance? Uh, I didn't actually see Muddy Waters in what, when would be, that would be about 58 that Barber 
first brought him over. Um, I don't know where I... Oh, well, I was at school in Scotland. And so I don't, I don't think I had much opportunity to, to uh, hear that sort of thing. But, but uh, yeah, I, I didn't hear Muddy until some years later at, at a big festival in, in, in the UK. And uh, I, I wanted to race over and, and uh, talk to him and maybe get his autograph on, on an album sleeve or something like that. But I, uh, somebody else uh, accosted me on my way uh, backstage. And by the time I did get backstage, it was just in time to see Muddy driving off in a, or being uh-huh. driven off in a Rolls Royce. Oh. <laughs> and I thought, I was, I was sorry I wasn't uh, able to get him. Actually, uh, uh, it may have been before that that I, I heard Muddy Waters, and that was at Dingwalls with Alexis Corner. And Alexis wow. uh, introduced me to Muddy after that. So and, uh, it's, you pointed out that it's six decades, and obviously some of it <laughs> is not quite as clear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's it's just an impressive memory to have, whatever the step, whatever the chronology of it. Yeah, yes. and um, and, and another of your jazz ex- excursions, which personally was very exciting to me, which was because I was an enormous fan of it, which was your involvement with Escalator Over the Hill, the Carla Blaine oh, yes. mega production uh, in the early seventies, which. Um, uh, and I wondered, was your connection to that through Jack Bruce, who you'd been with in Manfred Mann? Well, obviously, that was a, a link, but it was only a link. Um, I, I, oh, I was another, I was a crazy fan of Jack all the time he was in the band and ever since. Mm. Um, but um, <laughs> there, was a, there was a point in 1966 when I still hadn't yet left the Manfreds, and um, I was asked if I would put a band together for a compilation of white blues artists. Uh, they had all, they got all the Americans they wanted, and they wanted some Brits, and they they sort of were asking people like the Yardbirds and John Mayall and so on if they could <clears throat> um, go into a studio and cut some sides for this uh, this project, which was called What's Shaking. And um, I, uh, they, they came to me and they said, there's a rumor going around that you're about to leave Manfred Mann. And I said, no, never. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> actually, I'd been trying to leave Manfred Mann for months by that time. Uh, anyway, <clears throat> that they said, would you like to, would you put a band together for this project? And I said, well, I'll have a go. Uh, I'd, I'd very much like to. So the first person I called actually was Jack Bruce. And I said, um, Jack, this is the deal. Would you be interested? And he said, yes, I would. Who else are you thinking of? And I said, well, I thought it'd be great if we could get Eric Clapton, actually. And what do you think of getting Ginger Baker? (laughs) There was a silence. There was a silence. And Jack said, how much do you know? Oh. (laughs) And was that a genuine coincidence? it was a genuine coincidence, yes. So um, anyway, we, we've because, managed because to get of course, Eric. I mean, you haven't said it, but that that was about to become the band Cream, which was uh, quite successful shortly yeah, after that, yes, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Yes, <laughs> I I, I uh, do announce myself sometimes as the man who accidentally formed Cream. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> anyway, um, so so we did we did that uh, recording and. Um, yeah, we didn't get ginger, but it, it it all turned out lovely. But anyway, the thing is, Jack and I parted company really when we both left Manfred Mann in the middle of 1966, and um, I I was offered a movie, and I did it, and then all of a sudden I sort of got a bit of a, a bug about acting, and uh, uh, by 19. 19- Early 1969, I was just, uh, you know, seven days a week or six days a week actor and not doing a whole lot of music. And uh, the show was a big success in London and uh, they took it to New York. And what about four of us from the London cast went to New York? And uh, I was so, you know, I was upshot of it is I'm living in New York. I'm doing this show. And I read 
somewhere that um, Carla Bley, whom I've heard of very much, uh, partly in connection with another Vibes player, Gary Burton, mm-hmm. who I <laughs> was another fan of. And uh, I read that she was doing this strange project um, and that Jack Bruce and Linda Ronstadt uh, yes. were both involved. And uh, I thought, oh, well, I, I found, I don't know how, but I got Carla Blaze's phone number and I rang her up and I said, I don't know if you know me, my, my name's Paul Jones. I, I used to sing with this group called Manfred Mann and I've been a fan of your music ever since A Genuine Tong Funeral, which was a piece that she wrote that Gary Burton recorded. And she said, that's about how long I've been a fan of myself as well. <laughs> and, and so uh, we, we, we met, yes. gave me her address, and I went over there one afternoon, and uh, we, we talked about what she was doing. And, uh, you know, I said, if, is, is there any space for me on this project? And she said, I think there could be. So we, we, we talked, and, yeah, she gave me a very difficult job. I had to sing this song with Gato Barbieri, the madly uh, improvising very, very freely in very my free, ears. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I had to have some help from Carla in finding the notes of the song. <laughs> anyway. Well, and the words, and the words. I, I, I noted down today because I looked back at it, the phrase socialist station wagon solutions was one line of the, that you had to sing, which I don't suppose you sing much in the bath or anything. I'd forgotten that. <laughs> it was a very strange say it, piece say of it again. Say, say it again, socialist. Socialist station wagon solutions. <laughs> My goodness. Now, the guy was called Paul Haynes yeah. who wrote all the lyrics. Yes. Well, I, I, it was, I, I was very pleased, actually, even though I had a tiny part. I mean, Cameo was hardly, you know, small enough. But anyway, it was a small part. But I was very... Um, very pleased to be part of that project. Yeah, it was an amazing thing. Um, I'm aware we might we're, we're pushed a bit for time, so uh, I was going to ask you about about the blues today. You know, the blues as it stands, that uh, we we have a thriving blues scene. It seems in, in the UK still, uh, and I wondered how you how you feel it's changed in the time you've been involved with it. Well, I think um, it's sort of. Well, I suppose really every kind of music ought to be like this. It's like an octopus. It's got tentacles in various other forms of music. And um, it's got several tentacles in rock music nowadays. (laughs) Um, One in jazz, probably. And, you know, a couple in folk and a couple in soul and funk and all those sort of things. So it's all... Uh, it, it's all very interesting what goes on. And I think it's, it's, it's healthy. I think there were a lot of people who thought, no, no, uh, really the blues ought to be what it was in 1942, uh, up, up as far as 19, ooh, at a pinch 52. And then nothing else that's happened is really real blues. And I think, well... You know, if if you really liked blues at all, you would allow it to draw from other things and uh, mutually uh, compost them each other, so that they would so that they would grow healthily. Uh, if you want it to be a museum piece, you lost me. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's it's it's. I think uh, it's it's wonderful what's happening in the blues, and um, I do. I, I am one of those people who likes very much to to think in terms of its uh, original black uh, birth. But um, mm-hmm. hey, if there are people as good as Kim Wilson and Charlie Musselwhite and Jason Ritchie and all these uh, I'm only talking about harmonica players now because I'm obsessed <laughs> yeah of course <laughs> but, uh, but, but you know the, who cares what colour their skin is Let, let's let's be real 
It was a big debate, I remember, in the 60s as, as to whether white people could sing the blues. And yes. It always it was a quite a racist argument, really, wasn't it? Almost down to the sort of rhythm in the bones kind of stereotyping, you know, that only black people yes. could do that. Uh, <laughs> I always liked the, the Bonzo dog bands, Can Blue Men Sing the Whites?, which was a yes. more interesting <laughs> question. <laughs> But, um, yeah, so in terms of the current contemporary blues harmonica, sort of who are the people you listen to for fun? Well, uh, I mentioned Jason Ritchie just now. He's very, very good. Dennis Grunling is uh, very exciting. There's a Canadian guy called Roly Platt as well, who, who I think is absolutely brilliant and ought to be 10 times more famous than he is. Um, but it, it, it's very exciting. Here in this country, we, we, we've got some really sort of established, excellent people like Mark Felton and Paul Lamb, but also uh, some good younger guys to watch out for, like Will Wilde and Giles Robson. It's, it's a very healthy scene. Mm. Yeah, which is great. And from yourself and your own performing, obviously you've been off, off the stage for the last year or so for reasons we can only imagine. Um, but you were touring with the blues band, weren't you, right up to the point where things stopped? Um, Actually, I was I was with the Manfreds uh, oh, were you? right oh, up right. until things stopped. Right. But yes, I mean, the, it, it was the Manfreds the last gig that we did. Actually, as as I'm as we're speaking, we, we can, can we say that we're recording on the third? Uh, the third no. of what? The third of March. March. Oh, I see. That's well, what it is yes. today. Yeah. It is the 3rd of March, yes. As you and I are speaking, Tony, it is exactly one year since uh, I was at the O2. Uh, it, it, it was so amazing, just about two weeks later, to think back on that, 20,000 people oh. in the O2 listening to, well, everybody really, um, Paul Young, Van Morrison, Eric Clapton, um, Gary Brooker, who put the whole thing mm -hmm. together. Wonderful, wonderful band with um, the likes of Robbie McIntosh in it. And uh, who, who else was on that? Oh, Bonnie Tyler was on it. Uh, Yusuf, Cat Stevens. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was, was, I just, it was just, un, un, Tom Jones was there, for goodness sake. <laughs> and uh, Paul Carrick and Mike Rutherford right. and... Oh, it, it's, it's amazing. We were all raising money for the Mars, Royal Marsden Hospital. Ah. And uh, to think, you know, that it was a whole year ago and I've really done nothing mm. since. Incredible. You and everyone else, I'm afraid, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, have you, have, how have you found that? How's it been for you? Does it well, I've, I've managed to make myself busy. Um. And that, that's been kind of interesting. I have not written one word of the book that I thought I would be writing. <laughs> Nor have you learned but Spanish. I have, <laughs> I've, I've done all kinds of little bits and pieces of contributing to things that people have asked me to do, you know, charity things and, and mm. um, you know, all kinds of stuff. I, in my capacity as... Um, friend of the UK Blues Federation, I've uh, compared online uh, events. And um, yeah, I'm president of the National Harmonica League as well for some sin I don't remember committing. But anyway, uh, I, I, I've done sort of stuff with them and stuff for all kinds of people who've been kind enough to ask or greedy enough to ask. <laughs> It's been it's been lovely, and 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 uh, also there was a period in the summer where my garden got much better than it had ever been all the time I've been living in this house. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> so, and musically, have you have you been working on any music, writing music at all? Now, do you know I've hardly written another line. Mm. Um, I've actually. One of the things I've been doing to use up the time is um, gathering together the stuff that I have written because uh, there are there are organisations which help you uh, benefit from the work that you've created, 
And if mm-hmm. you if you aren't registered or if works that you've created aren't registered, then that's not happening for you. So I've been spending quite a bit of time uh, getting all that side of things together, and there's still a lot more to do, actually. Mm. So I've, I've still got a bit more downtime, a bit more lockdown time to uh, catch up on that. And then there's another couple of projects that I haven't mentioned, and I'm not going to. Oh, good. <laughs> They're the best ones, obviously. <laughs> I'm wondering, would that be a piece of advice, uh, what you were just saying about registering your ownership of music and things, would that be a piece of advice you'd pass on to people in earlier stages of their career? Uh, Is it something you wish you'd got down to earlier? Do you know, I've been passing on that advice to people quite a bit in the last few weeks because I look things up where I've played for people. I mean, I've done sessions Boy, have I done sessions. I mean, everybody from Memphis Slim to Katie Melua. But um, those, I think those people, you know, have registered all their stuff, but there's so many people that haven't. And I've been saying to them, you know, you need to do this because you're not making money that you should Mm -hmm. be making. Mm. Anyway. Well, I think it's... no, I think it's a very important thing that that have become more apparent, really, especially with the streaming services, that you've got to be very acute and very, and very efficient about these things because, you know, it's not the kind of musician lifestyle that you think of, but you're, you're throwing your stuff away, aren't you? And particularly this year when you can't go out and do gigs, it's really crucial form of income, isn't it? Absolutely. It really matters. <laughs> mm. And you mentioned the film earlier. It was kind of another thing I remember quite strongly because it, it was, I thought, a really impressive film. And it, uh, which I assume Privilege that is the film you oh, mentioned. Yes. Which, um, apart from everything else, was directed by Peter Watkin, who was, who was one of those sort of very significant people, I think, in, 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 in his art at the time. Um, and, of course, got very badly treated over his BBC work and uh, left the country in the end, I think, as a result. But it was a very striking film privilege, and um, uh, was it was it something about the sort of ethos of the of the film that got you involved? Because it's it's quite a politically challenging film, isn't it? It's quite socially critical. Yes, um, actually, what really got me involved was the name Peter Watkins, because all I knew about him, and I think all anybody knew about him at the time, was the War Game. Was that what mm-hmm. it was called? And it was, it was called, mm. yeah. And the, the the war game hadn't been shown, had it? That was the thing. We knew about it, but it hadn't been broadcast. I had seen it, or seen some of it, uh, or knew knew about. Uh, yes, in fact, I think I think somebody uh, had some rushes and things. <laughs> well, anyway, um, and I'd seen the whole of Culloden, and uh, mm. I thought, wow, this this man is. This man knows what he's doing, and um, met him, and uh, he talked about the project, and I, I thought, oh well, uh, I'm not going to get a film in which I'm not cast as a pop star, so <laughs> I'll say yes to that then. <laughs> After all, it's Peter Watkins. What could go wrong? Mm. It turned out to be, you know, the the film that mostly people didn't. Um, regard as among his best work, <laughs> but but I, it it was a challenge. It was a very interesting film, and it had been it had already been through some changes by the time I was brought on board. But um, there it there it certainly was. And uh, I nowadays I'm a little bit uncomfortable with the uh, <laughs> rather scornful attitude to the church, <laughs> which oh, it has. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, yes, well, however but uh, I mean it's an interesting fact I know you're a very committed Christian and it's very important to you in your life um, but but at that time that film was made you also were quite a uh, an outspoken atheist or agnostic yes, I, I was think. Uh, so it was kind of an interesting journey that you've been on really in that question well, it's something that Christians know, that uh, people who are outspoken atheists are much easier to convert. 
than people who yeah. say, I don't really mind. <laughs> mm. Whatever, so, uh, whatever. And, and any in any case, I was really only an atheist as an act of rebellion against um, uh, a couple of Christian people who had behaved rather stupidly. Yeah. Anyway, that's all there yeah. is of that. Yes. <laughs> well, yes. As Max Wall used to say. Yes, yes. But um, the other interesting thing about the film Privilege was that it was also very much about the manipulation of, of, of people through through the media and through pop music. In a way, I think, which would perhaps be more relevant or more understood now than it was then. I think um, at the time it was kind of a bit like Clockwork Orange, another film which was about the the way in which behaviour, people's behaviour, was being managed by people behind the scenes for cynical or political or religious reasons. Um, and that's, I think, what impressed me about it when I saw it. Yes, yes. And, and, and in fact, that was very much at the core of the whole thing. And, and um, I think, yes, nowadays, in a way, we, we sort of understand that sort of thing because we know more about, about sort of <laughs> the manipulation of innocent teenagers. Yeah. <laughs> but but uh, actually, there are chilling stories of similar things from years and years and years ago, um, all the way back mm -hmm. to the 50s and possibly beyond, um, where mm. there were people of enormous talent who died in penury mm -hmm. and... Uh, and, and were sort of victims of uh, the mob, apart from anything else. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's it, it's a it's a nasty business, and you have to be very careful. <laughs> Who knew? Who knew? Well, indeed, yes, Peter Watkin, obviously. <laughs> but um, so, <laughs> when when did you get your first harmonica? Where was it? Oh, I was in Plymouth. Right. I I had uh, what, what when skiffle happened. I managed to persuade my parents to buy me an acoustic guitar, which I sort of strummed for a while and learnt those three chords. As somebody once said, E A and goodness, what's that other one? Anyway, <laughs> the um, tricky one. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I I I sort of persevered with that for a little while, but it was a very short while because. Um, a girl that I had a crush on sat on my guitar at a party, and that was the end of that. Um, I I just really sang, and then I, I my my father was the captain of Plymouth Dockyard, and this and it was my first and only year at university, <laughs> and um, I came home, and uh, I. I found that in the center of Plymouth, or somewhere in Plymouth, there was a jazz record shop. And Ray it was called, sorry? Oh no, it wasn't Ray Russell's jazz shop. You're, Ray Russell is a guitarist. The right. record shop in Plymouth was Peter Russell. Pete oh, Russell. Peter Russell, yeah. Pete yeah. Russell's hot record hot store. Hot record shop, yeah, I and, remember it. And I went, I went in there and I, I used to buy things. And, um, he, he, well, I went in there one day and he said, you like blues? Listen to this. And he put on this 10-inch LP, which were much more common in relation to 12-inch mm -hmm. than they are now. And, um, and it was T-Bone Walker. Mm -hmm. And T-Bone Walker was a wonderful musician, great singer as well, but absolutely enormous talent as a guitarist. Mm -hmm. And uh, he started with big bands, funnily enough, but then he would uh, he tended to make most of his records with smaller bands, maybe about three horns and then piano bass drums. And uh, he had this one, he, he very seldom ever used a harmonica player on a session. But for some reason, his record company had persuaded him to go to Chicago and record with some musicians from Chicago, people like Willie Dixon, who wow. who actually basically were on nearly every record made in Chicago, mm. and um, and 
there was a harmonica player on a couple of tracks, um, and the track that I f completely fell for was called Play On, Little Girl. And there was this harmonica, which went, da 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 <clears throat> and and uh, and T Bone sang in, in in a very sophisticated non Chicago way. Play on, little girl. <laughs> Much more sort of Los Angeles mm. than Chicago. Anyway, I thought that record was stupendous. Forked out the money for it and took it home. And I heard this harmonica, and I thought, I've got to, I've got to get that. Get one of those. And that was the harmonica that I bought. And Brian Jones told me a few weeks or maybe months later, you're doing that all wrong. <laughs> was it a Hofner Marine Band or one of those sort of legendary Hofner. harps? Hofner is a guitar. Yeah. <laughs> I'm getting it all wrong, aren't I? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hona. Yes, it was a Hona. Actually, it was a Hona. Yes, I guess it was a. Um, in those days, they weren't. They were marine bands in America, but we didn't have marine bands in England at that time. They were super vampers. They were called super vampers. It was the, it's the same harmonica, but with a different uh, decorative reed cover plate. Mm -hmm. But uh, the, the 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 comb and the reed plates were exactly the same. Only the cover plate was slightly changed. Uh, why they called them super vampers, I don't know. But uh, the, the vampa was uh, a bigger one with an extra octave down the bottom, and uh, right. <laughs> and and we and that was the, that was the harmonica anyway that Cyril Davis played and James Cotton played and mm. everybody. And was that what you went on to play the the proper vampa? Oh yeah. Well, I stayed stayed on. Uh, no, oh, not not the not the big vampire. I did get one actually. No. Sonny Boy Williamson. Sonny Boy Williamson played the, the big vampire quite a lot, and uh, he was brilliant on it. Um, I I I I did play it a bit sometimes, but uh, never really fell for it much. The the the, the little one, the super vampire, which is you know nowadays the Marine Band or. Mm. Special 20 or whatever it is. Actually, there are, there are various, lots and lots of other makes nowadays, including uh, one by a guy called Tony Danica, who used to work for Honers um, and then went uh, and started a whole, uh, well, a wonderful harmonica manufacturing business of his own. And Danica harmonicas are stupendous. Are they like the elite ones these days? Would you say? Well, that, that yes, that they're they're um, they're sort of different in detail, and uh, they're they're very very airtight, which is really what you want a harmonica to be, mm. so you don't waste any energy, and um, yeah, and uh, they're just they're only, the only problem with them is because they're sort of made of sort of better stuff, they're heavier. Mm -hmm. I right. can handle it. <laughs> <laughs> that big. You have to do that bit bit of crouching down playing where you get your head down. You know, a lot of harp players do that, don't they? Like like Lee Brillo used to do in Dr. Yeah. Feelgood, you know. Oh, yeah. My goodness, Lee Brillo. Well, that, that I, I mean, that band, for me, was a, was an epiphany band. That, that They came along when they did, like 75, thereabouts. And, Dr. and Feelgood, yeah, yeah, Doctor Feelgood, and um, and I like, you know, I was of an age. I was, you know, long haired and flared trousered and prog rocked and you name yeah. it, and and jazz. I was very into jazz, and then I saw them in Bristol one night at the Anson Rooms, and I almost sort of like burned all my record. Yeah, you know, it, it totally reminded me. That's what that's what it should be. You know, three minutes of furious going and then stopping and sweating <laughs> and then three minutes more and then three minutes more. Just amazing. And particularly Walker Johnson's solo on uh, I'm a hog for you, baby, where he just plays the one oh, note man. and he, <laughs> and he goes right the way through the whole riff playing one note and then does it again, does it three times in a row. Just go dang, 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 dang. You know, the, and was <laughs> swiveling all over the stage, you know, and just what a man, you know, it's just the audacity. 
It was perfect. Yes, <laughs> yes, they, they they were extraordinary. Do you not find it tragic that you know they they fell apart really because I think yeah, uh, competitiveness and envy uh, between all sorts of things. And, yeah, yeah, it's a hard one, isn't it? They were big personalities, all of them, weren't they? And uh, I saw them once at the Kurzel in Southend, which has to be like their spiritual home, really. And uh, it burned down yeah. shortly afterwards. So I think it was, and um, they were, they, they were the, the, because it was a sprung dance floor, proper old, you know, um, uh, Palais de Dance type sprung floor. And everyone was bouncing up and down. And they had to get the bouncers in, tie ropes around the speaker stacks either side of the stage. And the bouncers in their dicky bow tie and everything, you know, big fat wrestling guys holding the music back with ropes. It was the most wonderful metaphor of, of what it was all about, you know. And yes. meanwhile, the balcony was kind of bouncing and you thought the whole building would go down. Oh, mind you, bouncing balconies, you know, uh, Hammersmith Odeon had a bouncing balcony, depending on who was on stage. Um, <laughs> speaking of South End, uh, there was one harmonica player that I admired enormously at the time, and that was Lou Lewis. Oh yeah, did you, Lou Lewis reformer? Yeah, I with, saw them uh, with uh, Bob Bob Clouter on drums, and uh, oh, I, I, there was a fashion at the time for sort of names that weren't real names. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, um, things like Laurie Driver, and uh, yeah, who was a, who was a member of the adverts. But but Lou Lewis was a wonderful harmonica player. And uh, mm. oh, I don't know, I don't know what what happened there because he should still be with us. He should still be, yeah, up there. I, yeah, I mean, you you say the name, and immediately I think, oh wow, yes, Lou Lewis. But then I can't remember when I last heard of Lou Lewis. It was, it was uh, a very short span of time. Yes, I mean, Bill, I suppose the whole South End. I I I wasn't there, but the whole South End scene was quite sort of tightly. Uh, you know, people knew everybody knew everybody, sort of thing. Mm. Um, everybody, everybody knew Mickey Jupp and uh, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Anyway, um, it, 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 he he was quite close to the because Vic Mail, who produced a lot of the feel good stuff, also mm -hmm. produced Lou Lewis. I remember telephoning United Artists Records and saying. You're wasting a major talent because you're not promoting Lou Lewis enough. Did they respond? <laughs> there was no uh, evident response so. to that. No, no. shame. But it's uh, it's one of those things, isn't it, where the, some of the best talents, either because they don't promote themselves or you know, just because the market doesn't favour them at the time, Um languish unfairly uh, it's it's a great shame I, I shall now go and find out what happened to Lou Lewis because it's, <laughs> it's definitely piqued my 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 memories there which uh, I can't remember the last time I would have thought about him to be sad sadly honest um so in terms of um people like Alexis Corner and Chris Barber and the the, the sort of main establishment of, of of the blues and jazz world in in London at the time you came down um you did actually. You were played with. You were in Alexis Corner's band, weren't you, for a while? I was never a member. That, oh. That's a that that is a story which has gone round and gained. You know, the tr trouble is, scholarship is very lacking in the uh, <laughs> in the sort of history of popular music. And uh, once one person has said something, it becomes a fact. And I was never actually a member of the band. I, I, I right. used to, I used to get up and sing with Alexis fairly regularly. But then that was just because he was very generous mm. about that sort of thing. And Mick Jagger and all sorts of people, Andy Wren, um, Art Wood, you know, all kinds of people used to get up and sing with Alexis. Um, but. You know, I was just one of those. But no, Long John Baldry was in the band. Cyril Davis was in yeah. the band, um, and various other people later on. But I, I, I certainly wasn't. But um, I, I was, uh, I was close enough to be part of the party album, 
which was the celebration of, I think it was Alexis's 50th birthday, which was sort of, to a great extent, organized by, well, other people. <laughs> I don't know that Alexis would have organized it, but boy, oh boy, what a band. I mean, he had Stu Spear on drums, uh, Colin Hodgkinson on bass, uh, Zoot Money on keyboards, and then there was a horn section with saxophones played by Art Thiemann, Dick Morrissey, Dick Hextel-Smith, John Sermon. Um, oh, oh, one or two other people. And, uh, and Alexis, of course, fronting it all. And occasional guests, including Eric Clapton and me. And uh, it, was a, it was a wonderful evening. And a wonderful uh, memento to have as a CD, but uh, it, it was it was it was amazing, and uh, that that's to to have been on that was great for me. And it's a great tribute to. I mean, Alexis had such a a positive value to the to the development of the music to to the development of people's careers. I mean, he one of those people a bit like and John Mayall did the same. You know, it's people who. Who found and, and encouraged young players in a way that ensured that, that, that the music flourished, um, and I think he was always thought of with enormous affection for that, wasn't he? Yes, yes, very much so. But he he just he could spot talent incredibly, and uh, mm. which meant that you know he, he his bands could change personnel almost one hundred percent. Because he was still in it, mm. <laughs> but 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 uh, and still be of the same standard all the time. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, uh, could he also he made television programs, didn't he, which were quite important in introducing the mainly blues music to to uh, those sort of smoky BBC Two programs where everything was very black and white, wasn't it? Ah, <laughs> yes. I was a, he had such a cultivated voice, though. It always seems slightly at odds with his with his singing, and you know, the, the, he he, uh, he when when he started to explain it, he almost sounded like an open university guy. You know, it just seemed slightly un, unrootsy. You know, but but he knew what he was talking about. Obviously, it was uh, <laughs> it was kind of it was strange to hear him announce a song, but then I, I think we've kind of got used to it because. You know, the, you had uh, all kinds of people sort of announcing songs in British accent, various British accents, Birmingham or South mm. London or whatever it might be, and then singing as American as they possibly could. I tried at one point to sort of sing as an Englishman, and it was laughable, really. And so back to the American. <laughs> It's interesting. I, I mean, Ian Anderson, the folk roots editor and, and musician, uh, he had a thing, and you know, quite principled thing that you know he would only sing as an English person, yet sang country blues stuff, you know, classic country blues stuff, and carried it off. I think, and um, I, it was one of those things about uh, about style, I suppose, and, and back to whose music it was anyway, you know. And, um, because it's just when you say romance and chants, you know, and dance, it never sounds right in a, in a bluesy song, does it? <laughs> romance certainly doesn't. No. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, nobody ever does say potato, do they? Really, not not really. <laughs> but it was another thing I was thinking of, and you'll probably remember. I tried discussing this with someone recently, and they no one else remembers the Mike Raven uh, on the radio in the sixties. Um, do you remember Mike Raven? I beg to differ. Lots of people remember Mike Raven. Good. And I know this because all the time that I did my Radio 2 show, over 30 <laughs> years, I, there would be a steady stream of people referring to Mike Raven and the wonderful radio mm. program that they used to listen to all those years ago. Yeah, he, I mean, he was great and he loved the music. I think he was an important educator, certainly for people like me, because he not only played the contemporary rhythm and blues uh, when he was on Radio 1. I mean, I used to hear him on 
think it was 390 or City, one of the pirate stations. Yeah. And and then he came on Radio 1. And he had, I think it was Sunday evenings, his programme. And he would always play like an hour of contemporary R&B and the kind of blues boom music. Um, but then play an hour of absolutely rootsy and particularly the sort of country blues, people like Robert Johnson and um, Gary Davis and Charlie Patton, people that I couldn't have found a record of where I lived, you know, but um, it, it got a sort of complete educated uh, ear for it because he was so so good about it, you know, and so consistent with it. And, and he and seemed to have amazing good taste, as far as I could tell <laughs> yes. at the time. But um, but then he sort of just, just vanished, and it, it kind of um, I gather it was he. I mean he he. I can't remember what his real. Do you remember what his real name was? It wasn't Mike Raven, was it? It was quite an odd name he had. No, but uh, I don't remember. But um, mm. yeah, people do vanish. I I think people think I've vanished actually. <laughs> really? Because <laughs> yeah. I'm not being on radio two anymore. Right, right. And do you miss that? Do you miss the broadcasting? It's quite a quite a routine, isn't it? I'm not. I can't miss it. Uh, I've got so much going on. Mm. Uh, it's it's. Um, I remember running into being on a, a, a festival with Humphrey Littleton, not singing with Humphrey Littleton, but playing harmonica with Humphrey Littleton, but his band was on. And uh, Digby Fairweather and his half dozen were on, mm -hmm. and I, I sang with them. And um, at that point, it was just a little while after Humphrey Littleton had left BBC Radio 2. And he said, uh, his public announcement was that he had uh, decided to give that up so that he could spend more time playing music live. And uh, I said to him, is that absolutely true? He said, every syllable, absolutely true. Um, so I said, okay. And I, we did our set and then he was topping the bill and I stayed in the wings and I listened to every minute, every second of his gig, he came off stage and I said, you made the right call. <laughs> it, was, mm. it was wonderful. And, um, you know, he, he was not a young man. No. I mean, it was, the music was so strong and, oh, it was mm. lovely. Mm -hmm. I, th I, I always felt with him, he, he kind of knew he had to make the most of his time, you know. That if, he, if he hadn't made that move then, he might never have got to do it, would he? I, th I mean, I, I'm, I'm very grateful for all, the, for, for all this time and uh, I don't want to cut it off unduly, but obviously, you know, we've probably got a lot of work for the editor to do apart from the else. Yes, yes. So, uh, um, don't give them any more. But shouldn't we talk about the big band blues bash? Yes. Can we talk about exactly? Could we talk about the big band blues bash and tell me how that came about? Well, it's, it's Denny Eilert. Um, yeah. I... I I've been a fan of Denny Islet for a good long while. And, um, well, and we're both fans, and I like to think both friends, of a wonderful singer from New Orleans called Lillian. Lillian Boutet, Boutet. yes. And Lillian Boutet was such an engaging, sweet, lovely person. And uh, she, made, she made some terrific records. And some of them with uh, Denny, mm. and uh, and so uh, yeah, I, I I'm not quite sure sort of how it came about that he he uh, he, but he has been for some a few years uh, asking if I'm available for the Bristol Jazz and Blues Festival, and uh, I've I've never I never have been because of my sort of multi-band commitments elsewhere you know, it's it's not not always wise to be in three bands but anyway um i was and so that was what happened but um so it it, it came about that uh, last year he said you know what about this year and i said yes and we fixed the time the date and all was going wonderfully 
and he told me who the band were going to be, and it's loads of wonderful musicians. And, you know, the idea of singing with a big band is like, it's not scary, but it's, um, it's exciting. Mm. It's, mm. <laughs> um, and I, I, I've very seldom sung with big bands. I've had a few, few opportunities, and I've really enjoyed it when I have. Way back when I was at university, I met a man called Bill Ashton, a saxophone player, and he formed the National Youth Jazz Orchestra. Ah. And a little after, a couple of years after I came down from university, um, he said, we're going to, uh, we've got this booking in, was it Dubrovnik? It was somewhere in what at that time was Yugoslavia, I think. And uh, he, he said, would you like to come and do some songs with us? And I said, yes, I would. And we actually rehearsed at the old Marquee Club, or the, whatever it was then, the Marquee Club. And um, we, we so I, I don't know how many songs I got together, but I was going to go and sing with them. And uh, it was some, some weeks ahead, and I thought... I know I'm going to make this into a motoring holiday and uh, I'll, I'll drive all the way to wherever it was. I never got there because uh, as, time, as time went on, I, I was hearing nothing. And I was uh, driving down through France and Switzerland and Italy and, and I, eventually I, I rang my agent well, I was ringing him daily at the time, and I said, what's happening with this gig? And he said, Paul, don't go. I said, but I'm nearly there. I was in Split somewhere. Yeah. And, and he, said, he said, turn around. Have a good time. Don't go there. I didn't go. And I met Bill Ashton sometime later after they'd come back, and he said, it was a nightmare. They ripped us off unmercifully. And uh, he'd ha- they'd had to stay on to pay off their hotel bill. Oh. <laughs> I said, well, who, signed it? <laughs> who signed the contract in the first place? Anyway, um, yeah. th- that, was, that was a missed opportunity because, you know, Nigel was thrilling. There's always mm-hmm. been some wonderful yeah. musicians in it. I mean, people like Stan mm-hmm. Saltzman and uh, Nigel thing uh, so so uh, no I think he w- he was he, w- he would have been even too young for that but anyway uh, some some great musicians and um, so I never got that one I did uh, I did get uh, to do a gig at the at Guildhall in London with a, a big band uh, put together by one of the tutors there which was that was very exciting but I mean I was very very disappointed when coronavirus cancelled my Date with Denny Eilert and the and the big band, but uh, hey, we've had a couple of potential dates in between. Those have fallen by the wayside as well, and uh, we now have a date in August. Yeah. Who knows? Who really can say whether that's going to happen? But it's going to happen sometime, it's, and yeah. boy, am I looking forward to it. We've got all the songs chosen, mm-hmm. and. Uh, I'm I'm singing them to myself and playing harmonica on them and all that sort of stuff while uh, I'm getting ready. Oh, well, I'm so glad. I mean, it was such a crushing disappointment when that, you know, because obviously it's one of the first casualties of the, of the, the first lockdown, wasn't it, at the Bristol Jazz Festival? And uh, it's been so frustrating, you know, trying to hold on to the idea of it, knowing that it's such a great thing. It's very important in Bristol, you know, and it's, it's a very enjoyable weekend of, of great music and Denny's big yeah. band things are, are the real deal you know he his his, his uh, big band with um, Johnny the trumpeter played fantastic swing bands um, yes. and it's such an energy and I imagine as a vocalist such an incredible lift to be in front of um, yeah. so I think you're you're right to be enthusiastic and I really I have as many things crossed as it's possible to cross <laughs> without falling over sideways and um, you know <laughs> we're all just we're all just so looking forward to it and, uh, you know, make sure you're there. <laughs> As I sound like you're committed to being there. 
which is great. Yes, I am very committed. Great. <laughs> well, um, there's a very committed audience too, and it's it's been so. For, I mean, in a way, last year we had this brief window when gigs started to happen. I think it was in about sort of October started people started to put on gigs again we had benefits for the jazz festival in fact and uh uh it, it just was awful because it was so near and you know it suddenly got squashed again you know and all got taken yeah. away and it was it was heartbreaking really and um we just you know bristol's a very lively musical city it has music all over all throughout the week mm. in all kinds yeah. of little clubs and bars um and you just have to hope those places are going to survive and I know the musicians are there. The musicians are all stumping, uh, well, you know, stomping at the bit as they're chomping at the bit. But um, they've just got to be. And I know there's an audience waiting as well. So I just kind of expect it mm -hmm. to be this incredible tsunami of musical excitement, <laughs> the first possible <laughs> opportunity. And I shall certainly be there myself. Great. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Paul. It's been very, very interesting. Uh, oh. And uh, maybe I'm going to start my weekend now. It's <laughs> weekends are a bit different these days, aren't they? So I can I can successfully start my weekend on a, on on a Thursday. Why not? You know, <laughs> and uh, have a five day weekend. And I hope you have the same. Okay, thanks very much, Tim. Thank you. Yes. Okay. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye. You've been listening to the Bristol Jazz and Blues Festival podcast series. If you liked what you heard, there's many more episodes with some fantastic musicians. Check out our website or come and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening.